copy of God's Word. Open it up, please, to Matthew chapter 6 today. I've done a, I guess, somewhat dangerous thing for a preacher to do. If you've been following the preaching schedule in your bulletin each week, you've known for several weeks what the subject of this morning's sermon is. It's about giving. And uh, when the preacher gets up to preach about giving, there are a lot of people that would just rather stay home because they don't want to be involved in this. I've been preaching on giving uh, roundabout ways for for a couple of weeks. Uh, Our studies in the book of Philippians and Matthew are kind of on a parallel track as we discuss the Sermon on the Mount. And in many cases, you're getting a double dose of... uh, some of the very same doctrines week after week. And uh, some say, well, that's very good. And I think it is because we need to be reminded time after time of, of course, God's grace and the many different doctrines that are in God's Word. It doesn't hurt us to be reminded of that. But when it comes to the subject of giving, uh, people really don't want you to give more than one dose. One in a great deal of time, you know, that's, that's fine. But don't preach too much on the subject of giving. But I am going to preach on it today, and as I said, it's a little bit dangerous to announce ahead of time that you're going to do this, especially if you preached on giving once, twice, and sometimes even three times in uh, a short amount of time. And there's some who have the attitude that when a preacher does this, that what he has is uh, he's very greedy, or the church is greedy, and all that they ever want to talk about is your money. And I have to admit that there are some ministries that they do focus on this. And when they get up to preach, the preacher stands before his congregation. And you hear it on the radio and you hear it on television. That it's always give, 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 give. Send in your money. Send in your money. Plant your seeds. Sow your seeds. And they're always preaching on giving. So you don't get one dose. You get triple, quadruple, and all kinds of doses of giving before you actually get into some other doctrines of God's Word. And I'm going to address that a little bit as part of the message today. But I also want to give you a right perspective on giving. Because if you give for the wrong reasons, and if you give for the wrong expectations, then it's not the church that's greedy, it's not the pastor that's greedy, it's actually you that's greedy. Because the reason that we give is that we might be a blessing to others. And if you are giving in order that you might get something out of it, that's some material good that you might reap from it, then you're really a greedy person yourself. And if you don't want to give, then I would also say that um, you're greedy because God has lent things to you. What you have comes from God. Everything comes from God. And when he asks you to give some of that back, if you don't, then you're just greedy not to give back what already belongs to him. The Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew are... Uh, great chapters, and it contains the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And I've told you many, many times in these many weeks as we've gone through this sermon what, a, what a, an important sermon that this is. And we would have to say, if this is the greatest sermon that has ever preached, that's ever been preached, then the subjects that it touches on must be of supreme importance. And so if Jesus chose to give a section on giving in the Sermon on the Mount, then who am I to fault Jesus? And who am I to say, well, we don't really need to preach about this. We don't need to say anything about it. Jesus preached on it, and he taught that we need to give. And I think it's important for us to learn this. So today we're going to talk about giving. Uh, Giving is a blessing when it's done correctly. It's not something that's optional for any Christian. It is commanded. It's expected of God's people. 
Now, if you'll look, please, in Matthew chapter 6, if you'd stand with me as we read God's Word. We're looking at Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for those who have come to hear your word today. And as we open up this text and we learn what Jesus has to say on the subject of giving, I just pray that you might open our hearts and we might receive the message in the spirit that it's given and with the knowledge that, Lord, this is one of the ways that we worship you. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us a willing heart when it comes to this subject. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to back up for just a minute so we can get our bearings of where we are and get a picture, a full picture of why Jesus begins to speak on the subject of giving. This particular part of the Sermon on the Mount contains the practical application of what Jesus taught in chapter 5. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus laid down some very important theological principles, the most important of which was how that a person can actually become righteous with God. And we spent weeks and weeks discussing, uh, from many different angles, the doctrine of justification and relating that to the impossibility of the natural man to keep God's law perfectly. We're all sinners that fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's expectations. And because God is a holy God, He demands nothing less than perfect righteousness. And because God is a just God... He also must punish us. He must punish sin when we don't live according to God's holy law. Jesus said in the last verse of chapter 5 that we must be perfect even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the simple truth of the matter is there is no possible way that there's any human being who can be perfect as God is perfect. We have no way that we can be right in God's eyes. And so the very best of our efforts, uh, according to the Scriptures, is nothing but filthy rags. We have nothing that we can offer God, because in every area of our lives, from top to bottom, through in and throughout, we're tainted with sin. And because we're sinners, we are under the just condemnation of God's wrath. Now, chapter 5 is intended to show us that we can't be justified by keeping of commandments because we continually fall short of God's perfection. And therefore, the only way that we can actually be right in the eyes of God is for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God must give us His righteousness. And He does that through the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus Christ. And by faith in the blood of Christ, we can have Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us. And that simply means that God credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we have faith in Him, God credits us 
with Christ's own righteousness. Now that is very, the very basic doctrine of salvation. Now, maybe you've heard it said in other ways, but that's basically what salvation comes down to. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. And that's what we contend for. That's the doctrine that we preach here, even though most of the world simply does not believe that. Now the teachings of chapter 5 are to bring us to the place that we understand this all-important, unnegotiable fact that Christ alone is our righteousness. Now, from that point, we get into chapter 6, and Jesus begins to address the practical application of this righteousness. And there are three illustrations that he gives in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and they concern three different areas in which we worship God. Three different worship centers. And the illustrations that he gives are on the subject of giving, praying, and fasting. And the whole of our Christian lives can actually be summed up into those three areas. Giving is how we relate to God with each other. Our worship God in relation to others. Our praying is how we worship God in relation to God. And our fasting which is our acts of devotion, that represents acts of devotion, that is how we worship God in relation to ourselves. And so you see here that it's very necessary that Jesus would speak on the subject of giving because that's one of the worship centers. It's one of three areas that we have in our lives. And if we're going to worship God in relation to others, we must know something about uh, giving as the Bible teaches this. Now, this is one concept that you need to keep in your mind as we go through this, that when you give, that is an act of worship to God. That's one of the ways that we worship God. And if you don't give, then you've missed one of God's primary worship centers. So today we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the giving worship center and how that Christ brings this information to us through the reward from alms. As he speaks about the rewards that are given for giving. Now, if you look at Matthew 6, verses 1 and 2 again, Jesus says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In last week's message, I explained the difference between the use of the word alms in verse number 1 and the way that it's used in verse number 2. In verse number 1, when Jesus speaks of alms, he's talking about all of our acts of worship, all of our righteous acts of worship. It comprehends all three of these areas. It comprehends the giving, the praying, the fasting, or those acts of devotion. All of it is wrapped up in verse number 1 in that word alms. But when we get to verse number 2, Jesus splits this off, and he begins to speak specifically in the area of giving. Now, alms is not a word that we use much today, but that's what it's related to. It means our giving. Most commonly, it was related to the giving to the poor. But we can uh, extend that somewhat to all types of giving. We can talk about it in relation to our tithes and other types of offerings that we give to God. The principle still holds true. And Jesus tells us that when you give, there is a reward that comes with giving. No matter what you give, whether you give rightly or whether you give wrongly, there is a reward. No matter if you give for the right purpose or you give for the wrong purpose, there is a reward. No matter how much you give or how little that you give, 
there is a reward. Now, there are two big questions that we need to consider in, that, in those uh, three scenarios. And the first one is, what is the reward? What is the reward that we're going to receive? And who is the one who gives the reward? Now, the second of those questions is answered very clearly in the text. Who gives the reward? Now, what is the reward? That's inferred, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. How does Jesus answer those two questions? Well, first of all, we want to look at the human reward versus the heavenly reward. What Jesus says here, in your giving, you are either going to be rewarded by men or you will be rewarded by God. I don't think there's any of us here that would argue too much about it, which one of those two things is better. I don't believe that these self-righteous, pious Jews would have argued about which reward they wanted to receive. Uh, They're not going to make much argument about which two rewards are better. And so if Jesus is going to make a case for a human reward versus a heavenly reward, then, of course, everybody would say, well, we want the heavenly reward. We're not really concerned about what we get from a humans, from other men. Now, that's the way it would seem, and these religious people, you would think that's the way that they fought. But when it came down to their actual practice of this, they weren't so much concerned about the uh, uh, approbation of God. They were really more concerned about the accolades that they could receive from men. Now, Jesus makes it very clear who he's talking about. He says in verse number 2, Don't do as the hypocrites in the synagogues do. Now, who is he speaking of? Who are the hypocrites? Well, they're one and the same with those people that are in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse number 20. Those are the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the ones that have a self-prescribed righteousness that was far below the standard of God. It was a man-made standard. And so it's only fitting that all the works that would come out of a man-made religion, a religious system invented by men, what would come out of that were things that would justify them before men. Their works were done to impress men. They weren't done for the glory of God. So they sought to be justified by men, and that only makes sense. When you have a man-made religion, what it's going to be concerned with? It will be concerned with man. And so what comes out of it is what's going to impress men. Now, Jesus says here, they have the glory of men. They get it. They get their reward. They have it. It's a human reward, and they're satisfied with the human reward. But just like their substandard righteousness, the reward that they received was also substandard. The reward that they received from men has absolutely no lasting value to it. You see, when you're, when you're looking for the praise of men, and when you're looking to receive your reward of men, you're only as good as your last act. And so you have to keep on, you have to keep working and working and working To keep the praise of men flowing, you're only as good as your last act. And I would submit to you that there are many people in the church that are actually working for this. They give what they give because they want to be seen of men and not for the glory of God. I remember when I first became pastor of the church, there was a man who dropped by my office one day, and this man had a check in his hand. I don't make it a practice of knowing what people in the church give. I don't go through the tithe envelopes, and I don't check to see uh, what you give each week. And I certainly don't send out notices to anybody if you haven't given enough. I, I, don't, I don't look at that. Your giving is between you and God and John Bunn, the church treasurer. So if you're trying to impress John, you might want to give a little bit more. Well, this was a fellow... 
who, who showed up in my office one day, and he had a check in his hand. And I think he had that check and showed it to me for two purposes. The first one was that I would know how much that he gave, and it was a rather large check, that I would know how much he gave and that I would pat him on the back and say, what a fine person that you are because you're giving this money. The second reason that he had that check in his hand was because he was showing me that he was not to be trifled with. And I mean that he could withdraw that check at any time if I didn't treat him right or didn't pat him on the back enough or give him enough accolades for what he had given. Now, I've known pastors and I've known churches that will change their approach to the Word of God because of what big givers in the church give. Because people give so much money, they don't want to offend the people who give the money. And so they back off from some of the things that they would say, some sins that they might want to preach about, because they're going to afraid, afraid they're going to offend that person. Now, if that's the reason that you give your money, and you expect that kind of reward, the reward doesn't come from God. And I can promise you this, that your check, I don't care how big it is, is not going to buy you special privileges in this church. And the reason that it doesn't is because the giving is not for you. The giving is not that you might receive something. The giving is because it's worshiping God. It's not designed for you. Giving is designed for God. This is worship in relation to others. When you give your money to the church, you help us to sustain the ministry here. You make it possible so that people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You make it possible that we can have a physical plant here where people can come in and they can hear the Word of God taught and there are the saints of God can be edified by the preaching of the Word of God. We have a place to do that. And of course, you also give your money that we might reach people throughout the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you come in with another purpose and you're going to give because you want somebody to see you, then you have your reward. And whatever it is that you seek to get for yourself, you'll have your reward. But it doesn't come from God. Giving cannot be for selfish reasons if you expect God to give a reward. Now, I want you to notice here just how far off these hypocrites were. As we look at verse number 2, what Jesus says here almost seems like hyperbole. I mean, it looks like that Jesus is using a huge exaggeration here, and this couldn't possibly be the practice of these people. Look what it says here in verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this. In America today... There are many charitable organizations that help the needy. All across this world, there are organizations that work through things like the United Nations, the Red Cross, Salvation Army, and others. And they help the needy throughout the world. They help the poor, help feed people, and so forth. And uh, those are very good works, benevolent works, charitable works. And we have this idea in our minds that this benevolence that we have is just really born out of the human spirit. I mean, this sort of comes with the territory. Because you are a human being, you just have this common nature that's built into you that you want to help other people. Now, do you know that's not true? The reason that there is any notable charity work that's done any place in the world today is because of the influence of Christianity. You think the way that you do because of the influence in your life of Christianity. Charitable works were begun in Christianity. Now, before the 
Christianity, the world really knew nothing about giving to the poor on any kind of a large scale. There was no such thing as an orphanage. There were no hospitals, no one to care for the sick. In the Greek and the Roman world, there were acts of giving to some degree, but almost without exception, the reason that those people gave, it was not really to help the needy, but it was that people might see what benevolent people that they were, so that they would get some praise for the acts of giving. So they weren't really compassionate acts. They were done for the purpose of receiving praise of men. And so when Christians came along, and they were in the Roman Empire, and they began to give for other reasons, when there was no pressure here, I mean, there was no giving because uh, I want to receive the praise of men. It's, it's giving because I really do have a heart for people that stunned the people in the ancient world. And did you know there are actually writings that they have found that describe this? Where they talked about Christians, how unusual that they were. Because people just did not give for these purposes. But Christians had been taught this, that, and Jesus taught this, that we need to help one another. We need to give to the poor. We need to support these kinds of benevolent works. And that was very unusual in, that, in the world at that time. Now, the Jewish people, of course, had the Old Testament Scriptures, and the Old Testament had been teaching this. But by the time that Jesus came along, the acts of giving in the Jewish world, in, in Israel itself, was much like the ancient world. They were giving for the very same reasons. Now, they gave more than the Greeks and Romans gave, but their purpose was not different. And so there were many who had this actual practice, and many who say this, that, that at the Jews, times of the Jews in, in Jesus' day, is that there was a set time that they would give to the poor. And what they would do is they would go out, and they would sound a trumpet. And that was an announcement to all the poor that they could come, and they could receive this charitable giving. Now then, some uh, proud Pharisee would step out of the synagogue, and there with the trumpet before him, he would begin to pass out the gold coins. And people would see that, and they would see that person as he gave, and they would think, well, what a benevolent person that is. Now Jesus says then, if you give in that way, if you give in order to have a show, and you want to show what a great benefactor that you are, and you want to draw attention to yourself, he says that kind of person has his reward. He's giving in order that he might be seen of men, and of course he's seen of men. He sounded his trumpet before him. He's already announced that he's going to do his giving. He's going to give his alms. The trumpet has sounded, so he gets the praise of men because he's passed out his gold coins. And therefore, who gets the glory? He's the one who gets the glory. And that was an act of selfishness. It was given, it was given, things were given to worship self rather than to help others and to glorify God. Now, we notice that in verse number 3, Jesus says that the right way to give is to be secretive about it. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that's just really a proverbial expression. It means don't let anybody who's on the left hand see what you give. Don't let anybody on the right hand see what you give. You don't give for that purpose. Then he goes on in verse number 4, and he says, The Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now, if you don't seek to be rewarded openly, then you will be rewarded openly. Now, that seems to be a strange way of putting this. 
And there are some people who think, well, if I give in secret, then God is going to shower down on me such abundance that everybody around me will see that I have actually given something in secret. God has blessed me. And so they pull out the new car and all their good stuff, and they have a nice house, and they wear fine clothes, and people can see, well, they they must have given something, and God has richly blessed them. Well, if that's the case, then it's nothing more than a human reward after all. And these guys that are on TV that are begging for your money and telling you that God is going to give you a material reward for what you give, is a sense they're essentially telling you that you are to give in order to receive the human reward. But I don't think that Jesus is really speaking about being rewarded in a material way at all. Now, you may be rewarded materially, and God will give you some things, uh, uh, perhaps, for your giving. But if that's the motive, if the material thing is the motive, then all that you're ever going to get is the human reward. Now, what's Jesus speaking of then? I think that he's really talking about heaven. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there in the presence of the saints of God and of the holy angels of God, and there in the presence of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, he'll give us the rewards for our giving. That's going to be an open thing, and everybody's going to see that. And so if... if uh, God gives you that kind of reward, then you have nothing that can be greater than that. And if you're seeking that it would show up in your bank account down here, and that's why you give what you give, then it's never going to show up in your account up there. See, if you are a true kingdom citizen, your thinking has been changed. Your acts of righteousness have changed because all of these are done in the power of the Spirit of Christ. They are endued with Christ's righteousness. And if you're Thinking has been changed in relation to giving in this way so that you understand that you're worshiping God alone and for the benefits of others alone. If your thinking has been changed, then you have correctly received the principles of Christ's kingdom. And so it's the difference between a human reward and a heavenly reward. It's the difference between worshiping God in relation to others and worshiping yourself in relation to other men. So now we have both the questions answered. Who gives the reward? Well, it's either going to be a reward that comes from God or it's a reward that comes from men. What is the reward? Well, in the case of the human reward, it's the praise of men. It's the accolades you receive from them. In the case of God and the heavenly reward, it's the praise and the eternal blessings that you get in heaven. Now, as we look at this, the second aspect for the alms alms for reward is this principle, that you get according to... To what you give. And that's true with both the human reward and also with the heavenly reward. If you give a little bit to, be, to receive the praise of men, then you'll get a little bit of praise from men. And if you give a lot to be seen of men, then you'll get a lot of praise from men. So if you give a lot, you'll get a lot. Now I mentioned uh, some time ago about the amounts that are given by billionaires in this country. And there's a lot of philanthropic works that go on and lots of uh, these very rich people can give money. And when Warren Buffett gave away half of his fortune to the Bill Gates Foundation, people applauded him. They said, what a wonderful thing that he would do this, that he would give so much. Now we maintain, of course, that the sacrifice in giving is not really what you give. It's what you have left over after you give. And when Warren Buffett gave away half his fortune, you know what he had left? Still so much money that in his lifetime and probably a hundred others, nobody could ever spend it all. And so when 
It's a good thing that he gave, but if you want to look at sacrificial giving, wait until he gives it all away, till his bank account is no bigger than yours, and then we can talk about receiving the applause of men in the right way. But I don't want to focus here on the human reward because I want to look at the, at the heavenly reward. You get according to what you give. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. A few moments ago we read in the 8th chapter and there Paul was uh, speaking about the churches of Macedonia and how they had given so much even though they were poor. They gave of themselves. They'd taken up a, a wonderful collection for the poor. And he uses their giving as an example. In the ninth chapter, he makes a statement that I know that most of you are familiar with. So look at verse number 6 in chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He says, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now the first thing that I want you to do right up front is get it out of your head that he's speaking here of material goods. At least not in the sense that Joel Osteen and the, and the Word of Faith movement teaches. And often the text is taught this way, that if you uh, uh, give, that you're going to become rich. And the reason is that God doesn't want any of his children in the world to suffer. God wants to give you good things, and God wants to make sure that you have an easy course through life. So you just give and give and give and give, and God will take care of you so you never have a problem. Well, if that's what the Apostle Paul meant, he is proof that it didn't work. It didn't work for him. He gave everything that he had. He invested everything he had in the work of God. And yet Paul was poor. We read about all the times of affliction that he went through and the many different hardships that he had in his life. All of the apostles did the same. They were all poor men. Jesus Christ himself would be one, would be a great example of why that doesn't work. Then in the next verse, God... It tells us that God loves a person who, who gives cheerfully and doesn't really consider it a burden to give. Now, if we go down to verse number 10, here Paul says, Now, he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, in both of these verses, uh, Paul is using an agricultural metaphor. And I think you understand it. When a, when a farmer goes out to sow the seed, he gets a harvest back according to how much that he has sown. God uses a principle of multiplication. You go out there and you sow one kernel of corn, and it produces a stalk of corn, that on that stalk there are thousands of other kernels of corn. So what you sow always comes back with a greater harvest. Now, if the farmer tries to hold some of that back, and he's afraid that some of the seeds that he plants won't germinate, and so he's going to reserve that and hold it in the barn, what happens? He doesn't get a good crop. He gets a poor crop. So the principle is that you get according to what you give. The more that you sow, the more that you reap. But we're talking here about the worship center. We're talking about giving as God considers giving. So what is it that God wants us to get when we worship Him in relation to others, when we give in relation to others, what is it that God wants us to get? What do we sow? What do we sow in and what do we reap? Now, let me me state it to you negatively first. Number three on your listening sheet today is don't make luxuries your necessities. Now, we're, we're promised that we will receive a supply of material goods in order that our needs may be met. And you know what the Bible classifies as your needs? Well, that's the clothes that you wear, that's the food that you eat, that's the shelter that you need for protection. 
And beyond that, the Bible does not classify anything as a need. But God supplies, and God gives us an abundance above those things. And what does he give it for? Do you turn the extra that God gives you into luxuries that you don't need? That's the American way, isn't it? That's what promotes the whole economy of America. But you see, God is not necessarily living by the American way. The framers of our Constitution said that we've been given certain inalienable rights by God, and these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that the framers of the Constitution said it, and not God. And sometimes we confuse the Constitution with the Bible, and we think that that God has put a stamp of approval on everything that America does. And so what we have done... We have turned that pursuit of happiness into a purely selfish goal that is not for the common good. And I can promise you that the framers of our Constitution never intended that the ultimate goal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness would be our own selfish intentions. And God never intended that the material outcome of this prosperity preaching would be something that we could consume ourselves. Now, without question, that's what the prosperity gospel is all about. It's about personal consumption. It's 180 degrees from what the Bible teaches, what Jesus and the apostles taught. Now, keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians 9, and let's go over to the book of Luke for just a minute, to Luke chapter 12. And here we find the perfect parable for prosperity preaching in America today. Jesus has the perfect parable for it. In Luke chapter 12... Look at verse number 16, if you would. Luke 12, verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Now there is prosperity preaching the American way. That's taking what God has given and turning it into luxuries. And what you do is you just build bigger barns to hold all the stuff that you get from God. You build bigger barns to hold all of that increase that you receive, and you never take thought for how God intends for you to use that increase. Now, what is it that God wants us to do with the increase? Now, there is a material aspect of this. We need to know what God intends for the increase that he gives. So what does God increase us for if it's not to add luxuries to our necessities? Now, that's the American way, isn't it? Well, the answer is back in 2 Corinthians verse number 10 that we read just a moment ago. And if we go back there and we look at that 10th verse again, the one who ministers the seed to the sower is God. And the verse says, and he will multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So why does God multiply us? Well, here's point number four. It's so that you can plow the field again with plenty. God wants you to take 
what he's given as your necessities. You can pull that out and use it for yourself to meet your needs. But what you're supposed to do with the extra is to plow that back into the field again with plenty of more than you had before. In other words, what God wants you to do is to keep plowing back in in order that you have a perpetual harvest and one that's always bigger than the one that you had before. And so when your harvest comes in, God always gives you more that you can plow back in. Now, folks, that's a cycle that goes on and on and on. The more that you give to help God's work, the more that he gives in order that you can help it even more. That's a cycle of blessing, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Now, the question for all of us is, why aren't we seeing bigger and bigger harvest? Why isn't the harvest really getting bigger for Brian Baptist Church? And thus, we have the problem with the American dream. And that is because we keep sowing in our field rather than in God's field. We keep adding to all of our stuff. And the result of that is we give all of our increase to ourselves instead of to God's work. And so the result of the harvest is that it's greatly diminished. We don't see a bigger harvest because we are simply not sowing enough into God's field. And you see what I'm telling you here? I'm not telling you to keep sowing so that you can reap some kind of material good to consume it yourself. That's the Osteen method. I'm telling you to keep sowing so that God's kingdom will be enriched. Not you. God's kingdom is enriched. You're worshiping God through giving because you're doing it for his kingdom and not for your selfishness. Now what happens when the kingdom of God is enriched? What happens when you give to help others? Well, we go back to Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus said in verse number 16. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, you remember last week we talked about that verse and, and I was speaking about righteous religion. Verse number 1 of chapter 6 is the heading for this section and refers to all of our acts of righteousness. And when you worship God with your giving, it causes those who are helped by that giving to glorify God on your behalf. And then do you know what happens? All of these people are out here glorifying God on your behalf. And as they're doing that, God is reaching these people with the gospel of Christ. God is reaching those people and they're glorifying God also by trusting Christ for their salvation. And so thus we have a completely new and different type of harvest. You may be focusing on the material thing, and that's what all of these, these prosperity preachings, preachers are doing. They're focusing on the material things, but God has something else in mind. There's a spiritual kingdom that must be enriched. And so when you sow with plenty, what you get back from this is, number five, a hefty harvest of helpers. You keep giving, and you keep plowing, and you keep sowing that increase back into the kingdom of God. You keep investing with God, and the return that you get is a hefty harvest of helpers. God saves more people, and in turn, they multiply your good work even to more helpers for God's kingdom. And that is exactly how the gospel spread so quickly around the world in the first century. These people kept giving sacrificially. There were very few Christians that ever became rich because they kept sowing the increase that God gave back into the kingdom of God. And in a few short years, the Roman Empire was saturated with the gospel of Christ. And you know what it did for those who took part in this? God kept increasing the fruits of their righteousness. When Jesus said, The Father which seeth in secret shall 
himself reward thee openly, they really had no idea how big that reward would be. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6.35. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. The reward is great when you give to God. Now, we can't measure it. Now, only God knows how much that reward will be. Can you just think back and look at the Apostle Paul and imagine for a moment what the Apostle's reward was? Paul preached the gospel, and then the people that he reached also preached the gospel, and they reached others, and they reached others, and they reached others, and they reached others. And And the reason that I'm standing here today preaching to you and you're sitting in this room today is because of the increase that God gave in his own kingdom. Souls won for the glory of God. That's what you do when you invest your money into God's kingdom. Now, today, as I said, I'm saved, you're saved, we're all here worshiping because God gave an increase. Now, Brother Jones was speaking in the Sunday school hour about Harry Buer, the man who had the vision to start this church here. And what do we have? Here, here with what Harry Buer started 40 years ago here in Rona Park, think of the hundreds of people that have received the gospel of Jesus Christ because there was a man who was willing to invest into the kingdom of God. You see, you, you can't imagine, you can't count up the reward that God gives when you give to him. God only deals with superlatives. He doesn't deal with small things. Now, let me add just one more, and I'll close the message today. And this is very important for all of us. Who is responsible to give? Did Jesus put any qualifiers on this? Well, number six is that giving is a common command. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus states this. Verse number two says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms. And verse number three says, But when... Thou doest thine alms. You notice something about that? There's no if there. There's no if you do this. Jesus doesn't entertain the thought that there might be somebody who doesn't give. Giving is a common command. This is something for everybody. Oh, but preacher, you don't understand. The economy's bad. You don't know how hard that I have it. I can't possibly give anything. You know that Jesus has a way of dispelling any notion that he didn't already provide you with something that you can give. When you think about that widow who cast in her two mites, she cast in, well, we'd say two pennies. That's all that she had. But she put it in. Everything that she had. And you think about that widow of Zarephath who had only enough oil in her cruise and just enough meal in her barrel to make one cake and then she was going to eat that and her son was going to eat that and they were going to die. And along came the prophet of God, Elijah, and he said, make me a little cake first. And she took all that she had and she gave it to God's prophet. You see, everybody has something to give, even if it's just a shoestring out of your shoes. You've got... Now, I hope we don't get shoestrings in the offering plate next week. But, but everybody has something to give. God has never said to you, and Jesus never said in this text, now here's what you need to do. You need to wait until you have $1,000 and now you're qualified to give something. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus was speaking to a crowd that was filled up with mostly poor people. 
Those are the ones who came to hear him. And these were people that were looking for handouts. They, they, they saw miracles that he did and, and, and uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and things like that. These were people that wanted to be healed. They were poor. They had problems in their lives. They needed food to eat. And they followed Jesus around because he could supply them with those things. And it was to those people, these poor people, as well as the well-heeled Pharisees, that he said to them, when you give. When you do your alms, he just naturally assumes. He doesn't say, if you give. Now, why does he say that? Why doesn't he opt out a few folks here? Why doesn't he say, well, there's some of you that are not qualified to give, and so therefore you, you sit over here in this section, and I'm not really talking to you, I'm talking to other people. Why doesn't he do that? You know why? Because giving is an act of worship. Get that into your head. Giving is an act of worship. It's a way that I worship God. And no one is ever exempt from worshiping God, are they? God deserves all the glory. And then Jesus doesn't give us an excuse not to give because also giving is an act of faith. Your giving is an act of faith. There's an expected harvest that always comes with the giving. But you know that God never asks for blind faith? The farmer goes out and he sows his seed. You know why he does it? He doesn't say, well, there could be a crop this year and there may not be. No, he's seen a harvest before. That's why he goes out there and he takes all of the seed and he sows it in the field. He doesn't keep it in the barn because he has faith. God has given a harvest. He's seen that before. And the same thing is true with you. Your faith is not blind faith. You have seen a harvest. And how do I know that? Because you're sitting here today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've already seen some of God's harvest. And so he's not asking you to sow blindly. Sow in faith. And God will bless what you give. So he's done it before, and you can expect that God will do it again. Now, you don't have to do this. You don't have to reveal your gift to the world. You don't have to come and show me. You don't have to come and show the, or show the person next to you, the person, somebody in your Sunday's class. You don't have to show anybody what you gave, because God is not going to miss it. If you're giving for the right reasons, God sees this. He always knows what you have. And be aware of this, that God knows what you give, And God also knows what you have left over. Now let me give you the last statement today. The God who rewards in secret sees what you secretly have. When you do your alms, you do it for the glory of God. And when you do, God will give you the reward of your worship. And it will come in the forum of angels and of just men made perfect. God will reward you openly for giving when you worship him in the right way. Friend, we need to learn it today. The lesson that God tells us here, worship God with your giving. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, there is one main concern that we have right at this very moment, and that is that we want to worship you. You deserve all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. And Lord, we do want to worship you. Every time that We give our offerings and we see souls that come to Christ through the work of missionaries, the work of pastors, the work that we're able to do in just the physical plant that we have right here. We are actually worshiping you and God receives the glory for this. And Lord, what we marvel in so greatly is that you've granted us the privilege of having a part of your work. You can do everything that you want to do without us. You never needed us for anything, and we're deluding ourselves if we think that you do. 
But Lord, we're just so grateful that you have given us an opportunity to worship you in this way, and then you turn right back around and give us more blessings because of it. Lord, I ask that you would speak to your people. May we be a giving people. And Lord, may we be a witnessing people that gives the gospel as well as our money to those who need to hear it. I ask that you might bless as we sing today, and I pray this message might draw some Christian closer to you, and then, Lord, that some lost person here today would would recognize that I need to be a part of that. I need to be worshiping God in this way, and I want to give all of my heart, my soul, and my life to Jesus Christ. Bless in this time, Lord, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.